Hi everyone, my name is Lubna and you are listening to They See Me Healing. If you are new here, They See Me Healing is a safe space to open up dialogue on South Asian social issues, mental health, mental illness, and healing. Welcome to this episode. On today's episode, I am joined by a special guest, Maria Benedict. Maria is a rehabilitation counselor working with women. Welcome, Maria, to They See Me Healing, and thank you for being on today's episode. Thank you for having me. This is the first time I've ever done this, so. But before we talk about today's topic, I usually do a check-in with myself and my guest, and it's essentially, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling very uh, curious, very relaxed. It's just a very relaxing weekend. So uh, yeah, just very grounded. Nice. That's good to hear. Um, I am feeling very full. I just had lunch. So I hope I'm not going to be like, you know, when you get sleepy after you eat. So yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, exactly. So I am feeling full. And I'm really happy to be here doing this with you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. On today's topic, we are going to be talking about addictions. Recently, a friend of mine introduced me to Dr. Gabor Mate's work. He is a physician in Vancouver, specializes in childhood development and trauma. I want to share his take on addiction. He wrote many amazing books on addiction, trauma, ADHD, And I've been watching a lot of his videos on YouTube and reading his books, and he's just so fascinating. His take on addiction is, he says, it's not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a weakness of character, and it's not inherited brain disease. But it is a response to human suffering and temporary attempt to escape suffering, and is developed in early childhood environment. So Maria, if you can just educate us more on addictions and your work and what you do in regards to this. So before I begin, I just wanted to say, like, I'm not, um, I don't claim myself to be an expert on this topic. I'm just more helping, like, this is what I do for in terms of work experience. And I'm really passionate about it. I also consider my work to be my hobby. And hopefully, I'm hoping that people, this is gives you a little bit of an insider look I'm really happy to like really share that and hopefully people do their own research and this gets uh, the conversation going I'm still learning I'm still in the process of continuously learning I'm very new to this field I have so much more to learn I I learn every single day from my coworkers. it's a growing field but at the same time like I've been working in this a while as well so I specifically work with women So I feel like very comfortable in that area, like with my experiences with working with women, uh, working with addicted women. And so it's been really interesting. I feel really passionate about it. And I still know I have a large learning curve to go into. But I think it's kind of an important discussion to have and that people talk about this topic Mm -hmm. a little bit more. And yeah, so when you mentioned uh, Gabor Mate. I saw some of his videos only now am I starting to read his actual book um, called Hungry Ghosts. It's really awesome because he works in 
the Vancouver East Side. It's kind of been referred to as having the poorest postal code in all Mm. of Canada. So it's just a very interesting area, but it also has a lot of like resources and and Gabor Mate talks about that having extra resources to help people in these situations who have addictions. So it's a really interesting area to kind of look at. So I'm also kind of interested in what he does because mm-hmm. it might be a little bit different from what we have in other provinces, especially in Manitoba. It is quite interesting. And so, yeah, just going back to um, what would you like me to, I guess, talk about in terms of like addictions, like I guess the definition of addictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was hoping if you can start with the basics, honestly, like what are the types of addictions? You know, what, or you can just start with the definition. What is okay. addictions? Um, and yeah. So I won't go into like super like wordy definition. But if I really had to like simplify it, I guess what I would tell people Mm -hmm. is it's a spectrum. So addictions is in a a spectrum. We are all in some way, we all have things that we are addicted to. Mm. So addictions is a spectrum. We all kind of, and it's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, It's essentially a coping mechanism that people have attained in terms of my work like we work from the biopsychosocial spiritual model and that's what Mm -hmm. you apply to all sort of mental health so there's a biological reason there's a psychological reason there's a social component Mm -hmm. and there's a spiritual component to it so it can be kind of a daunting broad very broad topic but just to simplify it like we all have our coping mechanisms we Mm -hmm. all have this thing that we go to and when we're talking about this coping mechanism of reaching for something beyond ourselves. For some of us, that's substances. For Mm -hmm. some of us, it's not a substance. So when it's not a substance, we call it a process addiction. And a process addiction could be something such as gambling. It could be shopping. Like a lot of us, Mm -hmm. especially during the holidays, might notice that we shop more and we shop and shop and shop or just a different type of behavior. So essentially a process addiction is like a behavioral Okay, that mechanism. makes sense. So, you know. Things that, mm-hmm. you know, we do on like a daily basis, but don't realize it's an addiction, you know, sometimes like exercise can be an addiction, food, video games, you know, those type of things where we often like to do for like you said, coping, right? Like that's soothing ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, food could definitely be an addiction or we can become addicted to food. So sometimes a lot of people say, you know, it's not necessarily the substance or behavior itself that's addictive, but it's our relationship to it. So another mm-hmm. definition that people go into is our relationship with what whatever it is that we are so connected to and what that and it's an unhealthy relationship. So I, I have, if you're addicted to food, you have this unhealthy relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And then what about the other type of addiction the substance yeah and then of course I normally work with people who are who consider themselves addicted to or dependent on a substance so they are substance users they misuse a substance or 
overuse a substance. So different types of substances is methamphetamine, amphetamine, benzodiazepines, alcohol, cocaine, just quite a variety, really. Mm -hmm. So in your work, like, do you find that like what Gabor Mate says about that it's a response to human suffering right like he says that it's a coping we can like absolutely Um, Mm -hmm. yeah I mean he did one of his interviews and he didn't mention working with women I'm unsure if he exclusively works with women I don't think so just from reading his book right now but definitely and especially because he works in a very sort of impoverished area so sometimes I do wonder if um, that's what he specifically sees because of the area that he works in and the type of like issues that people face that drives them to that area. I might see a little bit more of a spectrum in terms of uh, different types of people. So people who might not necessarily be impoverished, who might have support systems and a different story. So I might see a bit of variety in terms of clientele. But when you work in more of an in-treatment program, you definitely see more of that. You do, do, you typically do see what he sees, which is um, people who have faced lots of trauma in their life. So trauma in the form of sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, an unstable family household, intergenerational trauma, a lot of that. And so we call Mm -hmm as he mentions, it's called an, you know, adverse childhood experience. So they have multiples of those. And so the people I work with Mm. have multiples of those. And because of that, it's grown into uh, being dependent on a substance or harmful use substance um, in Mm. order to cope with what they've experienced um, growing up and the pain that they carry and Mm. attempting to cope with that. There are like, I think the top five addictions that I think workaholic is one of them. I'd have to refresh my memory again. I was going to look it up and then I completely forgot. I know it changes a lot Um, in terms of substance. Some people say it's sugar. Um, Other people uh, say it's also like tobacco is on that top five. Mm. Um, Of course, alcohol is a huge killer. Um, But work too, Mm. in terms of a process addiction, like work is something that people are very heavily addicted to so that idea of being a workaholic right so we don't typically think about that being an addiction but work it definitely can be an addiction Hmm. so a little earlier you mentioned adverse childhood experience you can just speak a little on it yeah I guess just to simplify and again I'm not an expert these are things I'm learning for myself that I Mm -hmm. think is really useful. We don't necessarily use that language. We tend to use just kind of like trauma, but I know uh, maybe a psychologist might or something like that or a different mental health professional or just someone who works in public health, that might be something that's interesting to them. So just a very like simple, brief way that I see it or view it is kind of just like experiences before a specific age that that affects their childhood development. And so they're not properly able to fully develop properly because of that experience. Mm -hmm. And it's usually a severe trauma. Mm. And there are three types, right? There's abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. And I also came across question statements that asks you about your childhood before the age of 18. 
of course, like this is just a guide. It's not like um, a proper way of like, you know, going into your childhood, right? It's just kind of like a way of understanding it on the surface. But I, I looked into the questionnaire. Yeah. yeah, it was really interesting. And I think like when people, I think it's good to kind of look at that, but obviously not go down the rabbit hole is mm. because like, when we do experience these traumatic events in our past, like we've come to the point of normalizing it so much, like we think that was normal, the experience we went through was normal, or we're kind of just, it's just kind of shoved in the background. And especially with immigrant children and stuff, we aren't mm. allowed to acknowledge the things that we've gone through. So yeah. it's like, right there like that is like an immense vulnerability airs you right in the face 100% yes yeah and speaking of the brown community South Asian community I want to jump into our next segment which is stigma like there's a lot of stigma around addictions and so if you can speak from you know the stigmas that you have come across at your work or in your community and what kind of languages are used around addictions Yeah, so that's really good. I know people use the term addict a lot, but I've seen other Mm. people and doctors specifically not wanting to use that term. I try and stay away from that personally. I don't know how other people feel about it, but just saying a person that is dependent on a substance or is addicted to a substance, not attempting to label them. But of course, people who have addictions might um, prefer to call themselves an addict and that's completely okay as well. There's just... uh, maybe a debate about using that term. And of course, yeah, the one that really sticks with me is that it's a moral choice. You definitely see that um, a lot with people saying that that's their choice. Like, why don't you just stop drinking? Or why don't you just stop using the substance? And it's like, as if it were some sort of choice that they can make um, just with a flash of a hand. And it's like, I think people don't realize like, you don't just wake up one day and you give up everything, your family connections, your health, your physical health and your financial health and everything just towards Mm -hmm. a substance. Like at that point, is that really a choice? Like that's the question that I want to ask them. Is is that a choice that a rational human being would make? So, so I guess, I guess it's like more the stigma um, is just like societal sort of institutions and places how they stigmatize uh, people who do have addictions, especially in the healthcare system. It just with my clients and people I've talked to, it's just a constant like not being understood or being dismissed because they have an addiction or being treated as of a lesser person. And that whole language of a, a choice or I'm an, that's an addict or they use these drugs and like um, you can't trust them or things like they're manipulative. You can't trust them and just being treated with, you know, far less respect, so that that really shapes it. So I do really feel for them. They carry a lot of, uh, you know, shame and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, hardcore using a substance is attempting to seek care and really feeling that shame and vulnerability to even share that. And you know, especially working with you know pregnant women who have an addiction, because your addiction just doesn't go away. Um, once you become pregnant. And so there's a lot of stigma, especially towards that and, you know, um, treating them as a less of a person, but they're still a human being. So it's so important to be empathetic. And like you said, they have a lot of trauma, right? And I think we need to change that language around this topic. Can you speak more on use and misuse? Yeah, so I like to use the 
terms use and misuse towards substances as opposed to abusing a substance or like just what other ever terms just to normalize it for a person because yeah there are times Mm -hmm. when we might misuse something or our use has increased with something and how do we decrease that use to protect ourselves I think that's a better more kind of normalized language which normalizes experience and takes away the shame that is involved with that so for me it's like yeah sometimes I overuse caffeine and that is sometimes my drug of choice and how can I Uh, limit my use of caffeine so that hopefully normalizes what people are going through so they don't come with that feeling of shame like this is a lot of shame attached to it Mm. yeah and so and I guess I didn't address at all um, what you're talking in terms of yeah the brown community or South Asians of course that's why we're here it's very important topic you know my mom Mm -hmm. made a comment this morning I thought it was hilarious and I just told her like I don't see a lot of South Asians like I at my work or whatever I just don't really see them Mm -hmm. she's like well and one time I did see a South Asian person and I don't know what reason they were there for but they just kind of like stared at me they just like stared at me just in very intrigued that I was there and I told my mom that and she was just like um it was she was just hilarious she's like yeah they stared at you so they can run away because they're probably freaked out <laughs> that you're there and they're gonna think you're gonna go home uh-huh. and tell everyone and in the entire oh they're gonna judge them and yeah I mean to be honest that's that's very that's what a lot of people do in our community right they just snitch or they just don't have that empathy and it's a normal response but at the same time like you're the most understanding person in this like field (laughs) you know you have that empathy towards them exactly and I'm like I totally understand um that was my first experience first time I went to see a counselor I was absolutely terrified because they put me with a brown guy and I was floored Mm -hmm. I was like I don't know if I could do this and I told him on the the counselor the first time I told him like I don't know how comfortable I am um, seeking Mm. help from you because you're from my culture and I'm really scared of the judgments and kind of my own self-stigma or whatever and it was very interesting I'm glad I helped kept him he was very very helpful and I'm so grateful to him Mm. but so I remember that experience so I totally understand why someone might think that yeah, I could see that too, like from myself. What are some alternative coping mechanisms you give? Yeah, so of course, um, because sometimes um, this the substance or the behavior that you're addicted to is your main coping mechanism for the trauma or things in your life that you have faced. So also, you know, Gebra Mente said, you know, it's also just pain so maybe you haven't you don't recall traumas that happened in your life but we all you know it's a human experience to have pain in our lives and it's human experience to have uncomfortable emotions and we find our own coping mechanisms for that and some of those coping mechanisms end up being quite unhealthy or unhealthy for us so it's up to us to replace it with coping mechanisms that are helpful that um, create resilience that creates wellness and so an exercise that me and my coworkers do with our clients is getting them to create a wellness toolbox. And in that wellness toolbox, putting, getting them oftentimes to brainstorm what are healthy coping mechanisms that they can use. So the language we would use is probably self-care. So 
self-care is very broad. Self-care is your physical, your mental, your social. Um, so it's very broad and sort of thinking of that in terms of wellness. And within that, what coping mechanisms do you have available to you? What resources do you have available to you? And so a lot of people might state journaling. Journaling is a really helpful one going for a walk, getting exercise, um, eating healthy, talking to a friend, sitting with my emotions, um, mm. mindfulness, meditation. Those are very common ones that people express that really help them in terms of coping mechanisms in their sort of wellness toolbox. Those are great coping mechanisms. It's important to promote self-love. And that's something we don't do enough in our community, in our own culture, or at least in my own family, you know, it's just like, oh, self-care, what is that? You know, it's like, okay, giving yourself a little break and taking care of yourself. Like, you know, there's that like, go, 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 go. You know, we got to take care of the family and like women are not supposed to rest. It's just like we keep going, going, going. And unfortunately that breaks you and it's just not healthy emotionally and mentally. Yeah, that, you bring up a really good point. Um, self-love, positive self-talk, boundaries, creating our own needs. Like I think in terms of unhealthy coping mechanisms, you're totally correct. Yeah, within South Asians, we have this idea of like this, another friend mentioned it, you know, toxic productivity. We have this idea of we always have to be productive. We always have to be just shoving all the things that our needs behind and just working, working, working towards something, towards mm. taking care of our family or whatever, and not taking the time to say, sit there and say, what does my body need right now? What does my mind re- need right now? Take a step back and realize what's going on and honor their emotions and their feelings and help themselves. Absolutely. And I grew up with that as well. Um, just anger and frustration directed towards me because you know, specifically my dad could not, he was not taught to sit with his emotions, that emotional self-awareness, how to take care of himself. He didn't have those basic skills. So that frustration would just, just patter on to everyone else, you know? And I think maybe that's, I don't know how common it is in other South Asian families, but it's something I definitely hear about all the time of that happening. Mm. Um, The frustration just pounding out to everyone else and not being able to sit and be aware of you know this is what I'm experiencing right now it's not about other people Um, this is how I'm going to learn to cope with it this is how I'm going to talk about it in a healthy way right thanks for sharing that that was very personal how has your personal experience impacted you to choose what you are doing today yeah even though I'm chose to I mean I didn't it kind of just fell into this field. Like I know I always want to work with people, especially people who faced a lot in their life. That comes from how I grew up, I guess. Like, and in terms of addictions, I wasn't so far removed from it, even though I did kind of fall in initially sort of fall into this specific category because like growing up, my grandfather was very addicted to alcohol. Uh, He was a really good man definitely one of the best uh, male role models I have in my life but he could not uh, shake his addiction to alcohol so he would he was a binger so he would binge for days and then he could go and he could stop and quit for a while and then it would start again 
And so that did lead to complications and event, especially towards the end of his life. Uh, and I was told um, that went towards him passing away from complications related to also his drinking. So I did see that. I grew up with my grandparents before the age of five. So I saw him intoxicated quite a number of times growing up. But that didn't make me lose any sort of respect in him or whatever. Like he was, I could see that he was a very good man. And this is just something that he struggled with. Mm. Um, And I'm not sure that I wasn't like I was pretty young and I'm still not fully sure because I didn't grow up there what resources were available to him and I'm sure there wasn't many resources available to him but just beyond that like it it is widespread um in terms of like a lot of like South Asian communities there is a lot of traumas that we've experienced in terms of um, intergenerational trauma you know with colonization Mm -hmm. and also poverty a war Um, I specifically come from Sri Lanka where there was war and war-torn areas and I come from a community, a minority community that was often discriminated against uh, by the government and was subject to, you know, ethnic cleansing. So we had kind of our culture ripped apart, our identity ripped apart, our sense of safety ripped apart um, growing up, um, Mm -hmm. and especially my parents. So that is going to create ongoing trauma in the next couple of generations. And that's going to create unhealthy coping mechanisms and our ability to deal with that. And you Mm -hmm. already see it rising. Um, Suicide rates are probably rising and substance use and misuse is rising. So, so it was really important to me. And I think that sticks with me and people in my community of wanting to, you know, sort of address this trauma and trying to come out of it strong and alive. And that's why uh, this work is important to me from personal experience. I've known, mm. I know what I experience in my family. And so when I see my clients, I see that, yes, I can connect with them that way because many of them have might experience that, especially indigenous people. I think we have an opportunity as immigrants or refugees to really connect with um, indigenous communities because they've experienced similarly that intergenerational trauma of Mm -hmm. having their culture ripped apart, their traditions um, even more so ripped apart um, and attempting to rebuild themselves and Mm -hmm. um, that community sense and wanting to, you know, uh, stick with their culture. And so it's really important to me to work with that community because uh, we share so much in common. I really support the idea of them keeping their traditions, figuring out what their identity is. And I understand and acknowledge that there are differences between me and them in terms of what I'm trying to figure out versus them. So typically immigrants, you know, we're in this immigrant children, we're trying to figure out what our identity is in terms Mm. of are we Canadian or are we from back home and how do we meld that together? That's that Mm. constant um, identity crisis with, you know, Indigenous people. It's um, yeah. not having shame towards their identity and rebuilding their uh, traditions and, uh, you know, being resilient, saying, you know, yeah. resilient. So, um, yeah. and maybe the questions are different because, you know, that's always been a part of Canada, um, the indigenous community that is what makes up Canada and Absolutely. it's more fighting for that. 
to be in the forefront. Absolutely. It's so important to acknowledge that. And I am still learning. It can be very difficult for Indigenous peoples to achieve that optimal mental wellness. And essentially, mental wellness is that mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual balance. So when they're facing ongoing challenges like systemic racism, discrimination, um, CFS, um, negative effects of residential schools, intergenerational trauma, colonization, just to name a few. Um, As immigrants, children of immigrants and white colonizers who are extremely entitled and privileged have to understand, support and empathize with indigenous communities and their struggles and injustices they're facing on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I think we, maybe it's immigrants, they come here and they think too much of the sort of American dream idea, like making it ahead and becoming successful, which is great. It's great that we've gone so far and um, we are, as a community, as South Asians, we do strive for success. That's wonderful, but it shouldn't come at the point of completely forgetting all the struggles we face and learning to properly deal with those struggles and empathizing with other communities and sharing in their struggles as well. It was really interesting when you talked about like intergenerational trauma, and I do want to go more into it and maybe in a different episode, but just an overview Mm. of like how our, what our grandparents went through that affected our parents. And now that's affecting us, you know, our grandparents going through um, war, oppression, domestic violence, patriarchy, PTSD, all of that caste system, like, you know, that that really affected our parents and the way trauma presented into their lives was through repressed anger and codependency, which was a term I learned from you. I am so fascinated by the term of codependency and I want to like do an entire episode on that. And also emotional abuse, physical abuse, that was all presented in our parents' lives. And now with our generation, it's we see things like eating disorder, anxiety, attachment issues, depression. I want to emphasize that, yes, like trauma can be passed on through generation to generation, but also healing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Right now and we can start healing our generation and then, you know, hope for the best and for our future generation, right? Like that, we need to address it. We need to acknowledge it. We need mm-hmm. to and identify it. It's happening in our community. And so that's where healing begins with us right now. And unfortunately, like, I don't know how hopeful that can be for my parents to go seek therapy or, you know, seek therapy. Like, I don't know if there's something that's something they're willing to do. I'm going to say that's going to be like a hard pass on them like I don't think they're willing to do that at this point of their life but I can do that right I can acknowledge all of the suffering they went through my grandparents went through and what how that have has affected me and I'm in that journey Mm -hmm. of healing for myself and my future generation so that's an important healing is an important aspect of intergenerational trauma exactly yeah you're really you know empowering yourself and you know I really resonate with you on that too. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's really heartbreaking for us because we also acknowledge some limitations in terms of our own parents or grandparents being able to acknowledge or address what they've faced. And now we're kind of in that position of just kind of us taking on that role to make sure that we 
heal ourselves and not pass it on. And I think that, yeah, that's really important and it's wonderful. Awesome that you're doing that. And it's awesome that you're having those discussions. I want to wholeheartedly thank you for educating me and our listeners um, on this topic. It's a very, very important topic. And we just got into it. There's so much that, you know, we can keep learning about addictions. Yeah, I mean, thank you for having me and to help add to this discussion. I'm always uh, happy to talk to anyone about it and um, broaden it because I personally, I feel this is these aren't things that we should keep in secret. I think we should facilitate discussion and that each one of us, you know, whatever line of work we choose to do to, you know, whatever chance we get to kind of talk about it and facilitate some sort of discussion mm. so that people get some interest or insight about themselves is always great. Um, Thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time out for speaking and sharing your insight, your knowledge, your experience, and just being so awesome. Thank you again. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of They See Me Healing. Feel free to connect with me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, or email me at theysee.me.healing at outlook.com until next time let go and let's glow